Hello, and welcome to Evaluland, the podcast about the land of evaluation between you and me, your host, Dana Linnell Wanzer. This is the show where we interview people about any and all things evaluation related. Welcome to another episode of Evaluland. I'm excited for today's episode to better get to know Dr. Tristy Nichols and her work doing international evaluation. She reached out to me via Twitter, and I'm so grateful she did so because I love being able to get to know new people and learn about the awesome work they're doing in evaluation. So thank you, Tristy, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Dana. Thanks so much for inviting me. I've been wanting to do a podcast. Yeah, well, thanks for um, offering to come on. I'm actually really grateful for folks that like offer to come on and talk about interesting things or even just to get to know folks better. Um, it makes my life a little easier because, you know, cold emailing people and asking them to come to the podcast is uh, a little anxiety provoking. Um, and so I'm just really grateful that folks like you are interested in coming and talking. Yeah, great. Thanks. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks. So um, starting off, I wonder if you could introduce us to our listeners. What are you currently doing now? And then eventually I want to ask you how you got into evaluation, but what are you doing right now? Right now, um, I'm actually doing a couple of things. I have a very large project um, with UNICEF. It's a United Nations entity that um, cares for children and the... um, focus is uh, with eight countries, and we're uh, doing secondary data collection um, for several different indicators related to reproductive health, uh, child marriage, adolescent pregnancy, uh, education, and the focus is um, female adolescents in particular. So uh, we just I say we because I'm part of a larger team, but I'm the team leader. And um, so the the intent is to gather what we call build an evidence base of these indicators for all of these different research areas. And then um, over the course of this year long contract, um, we've been uh, interviewing different stakeholders about how they access their information, what challenges they're having, what kind of information that they are managing to get. Um, there is a digital divide out there. So a lot of times people are not really able to access secondary information, like say you and I are um, just going to a website. So some people have to pay for internet. And mm-hmm. so there's a lot of challenges there. Um, but they're... Um, group that they're supposed to be focusing on um, young girls is like right in front of them. So there a lot of people are actually resorting to um, collecting information directly from their stakeholders. So that was the one, one of the key findings we found. <laughs> it's like, well, we don't really have a lot of secondary information. We just go and collect our information through focus groups and it's working for them. So um, and then there's, I just wrapped up uh, um, an evaluation in Papua New Guinea. Uh, it was my first virtual evaluation, uh, which was very different. Um, the, um, again, another UNICEF project, but um, this project was designed to help parents basically refrain from using um, violence uh, against their children. Um, so... 
through the church, they were able to um, kind of teach parents to be more effective parents. So, um, and through role play and peer, peer to peer models. Uh, and so that evaluation just wrapped up in January and um, I'm really grateful that I had the opportunity to do uh, remote evaluation, but it was very challenging because I had to basically train a team of people from New York and they're in Port Morrisby, which is mm-hmm. <laughs> um, like, a, I think it was like 11 hours difference. So, oh, geez. <laughs> so I had to do, um, you know, training online at like one or two in the morning, just to kind of over the course of like several days to, to make sure that they were getting the concepts correct. And, um, doing, we did role play with interviews and it was, it was very challenging, but we made it. So that's all I can say. Yeah. I'm probably going to ask more questions on that. Cause I'm really intrigued. I, it sounds like challenging, but rewarding and like being able to promote evaluation capacity building within you oh, know, new folks. Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely. A lot of capacity building and a lot of things that, you know, when I go to the field, typically I take for granted, you know, like um, just the whole uh, protocol, like everything mm-hmm. you tell me is confidential. We're here to do no harm. Um, yeah. Uh, and you explain about the program and why their um, opinions matter and why it's important. All that stuff is just like what I take for granted, but there you have to kind of explain it in a way so that, you know, it's culturally, you're not like telling them that you're going to tell. That's why you're going to say it's confidential, but you know, it was, it was very interesting. And I can imagine it provides like (laughs) fresh perspectives as well of like, you know, you thought this would work and they're like, well, given our context, I really don't think so. And here's why. And so having that fresh perspective, I can imagine is also beneficial. Well, I mean, they are the new agents on the front line. And I wrote about this for as a possible AEA uh, American Evaluation Association um, proposal. Like this is the new frontier. Like Mm -hmm. you will, it's not just about strength and capacity, but the new agent on the front line is this uh, capacitated um, evaluator who may not have like all the tools that you have, but you're kind of teaching them and helping to navigate them from behind. So it was, it was very interesting. And then the um, actual person who's being interviewed doesn't feel that disconnect, like say a woman from New York, right? They see their fellow Papua New Guinean. So they're able to extract even more, I don't want to say robust information, but in a way it's like, they're telling more truth, you know, Mm -hmm. their truth because they see somebody like themselves um, as the other person. Right. Uh, getting the information. So that had some strengths and then some weaknesses, but it, it was definitely a challenge. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, all of evaluation during the pandemic has been quite a challenge, has it not? <laughs> it has. I mean, I'm not necessarily um, 
um, I was just going to talk about this later, but um, I'm not necessarily uh, a fan of, you know, conducting interviews through uh, MS Teams or, you know, Zoom, mm-hmm. but as a, out of necessity, this is just uh, how the, the new way of working is. But um, I eventually fell into evaluation. Um, I wasn't always an evaluator. I initially started um, overseas as a planner. I was more the one person who was kind of drumming up the business and writing proposals Mm. and um, uh, developing these programs and projects and activities for other people to implement. But I was the one who would like bring all the um, contextual analysis together. And then based on what you had there, what you could you feasibly do within the timelines. And I had been doing it for a while and I was getting really good at it. But then I, at the end, I think I just kind of snapped out of it and said, you know, what is all this going to really accomplish? You know, Mm -hmm. I was like trying to really find the meaning there. And then um, I was at the time working for CARE, CARE International um, in Angola and Zambia and Somalia. And then I think once I got to Somalia, I was just like, you know, I want to, I need something more. Um, So and then I needed a break too, because Somalia was quite dangerous at the time. Mm-hmm. The American troops had just left and um, this was during the mid nineties, but um, it, we, I had a little situation where it was, you know, not necessarily a good situation. <laughs> and then I just said, you know, there's gotta be another way to enjoy being overseas without taking your life in your hands. So that's when I went back to school and uh, I went to Cornell University. And then I, they had a program back then that was specifically geared for evaluation. So had you known about evaluation or how did you, how did you learn about evaluation through your work? Well, I mean, in the international world, evaluators are like, you know, um, very high level um, people who drop in from, you know, London or New York. It's quite glamorous looking, actually. And yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, and they're asking very unique questions about your program. And then at the end, they are able to articulate, you know, your work in very theoretical terms and they make you look good. Or if you're not, if you're having challenges, they tell you what solutions you might wish to pursue. Um, So uh, I think when I was in Zambia, there was an evaluator that flew in. Um, She was an Ethiopian woman, Asfaha, I think that was her last name or something. Mm. And she was just like all glamorous, you know, the heels and the Ethiopian traditional dress and she was able to like get down to business right away and everybody was on their toes (laughs) trying to get her from one place to the other she was Mm -hmm. meeting with different government officials and I was just like you know that sounds really good 
But after that, I went to Somalia and I had my situation there. And then that's when I decided to go and do um, evaluation as a, to further study evaluation. And then when I went and I got there, I really, you know, saw that it is, well, the program that I was in was very specialized in qualitative and quantitative methodology and mm. um, measurement. And, um, and then I, that's when I really discovered that it was very much who I was. And so since then, you've been in New York, because uh, Cornell's in New York, right? So you've been in New York ever since? Um, yes, I lived in New York and Baltimore, and um, I have a business that I've been running as an independent contractor for 17 years. Mm. I haven't always done work just as the business. I have sat within um, evaluation offices within Mm. the United Nations. Uh, and so that there's like three or four stints where I did that, uh, just specifically uh, allowing myself to be within an organization and do evaluation work. Um, I mean, in this business, there's usually two different ways you can actually do evaluation. One is you are an independent contractor and you have different clients. So you have, in my case, I have the United Nations, I have non-governmental organizations. You have the United States government as your clients. The other way you can do it is if you sit within an organization and you are also performing evaluations. Uh, So within the United Nations, there are evaluation offices where different parts of the, the the organization is evaluated. And in that case, you have opportunities to go and visit certain country offices. So, and and they have different programs. So it's not necessarily an internal evaluator. Usually you are still considered an external Hmm. evaluator, although you are within the same organization. So for that case, I had um, the Office of Internal Oversight Services, um, the UN Population Services, and then um, there was the Office of Transition Initiatives, which was the US government. So you had the opportunity to still do evaluation, but you're just within the context of the same organization. That makes sense. So, um, So those are the two camps you can be in evaluation. Um, in international work. But uh, for the most part, I have been the contractor, it's my business, um, subcontracted as an external entity to go and evaluate um, different programs. And uh, so that's pretty much that. Um, I did uh, kind of have I do have a different story though, unlike many international evaluators, because mm. um, most international evaluators have either done like Peace Corps or they've gone on some kind of uh, religious mission mm. uh, with their group, uh, their church, and then fallen in love with going overseas and then spending time overseas. So I didn't have any of those routes. I was uh, actually born into this 
<laughs> world of international work because my mom worked uh, for non-governmental organization. Oh, very cool. And so when I was like 13, she took me to um, this African country and said, just we're going to be living here. And then she was a product of the 60s. So she wanted me to not only, and they didn't have uh, American schools or international schools, this one location. And so she just enrolled me into the public school there. Wow. So that's my unique kind of different take on it. Uh, eventually, you know, I only spent that one year outside and then I went into a boarding school. But um, that was kind of like my very different, you know, situation. So because I had that and then I had to learn um, a foreign language just to kind of learn school, um, I have uh, two different languages under my belt. Uh, I speak French and Portuguese in addition mm. to English, of course. So um, I have that kind of situation that is very different from most people who decide to explore international work. Um, and uh, because of that, I think too, and unique to my situation is there's this field is like not very diversified if you can believe it because it's like internationally you think it would be cultural diversity everywhere but mm. um there are very few african-american female evaluators in my world at all like i i haven't met anybody close to who i am either a younger version of me or older version of me. Um, it's a very unique kind of situation. Um, and, oh, go ahead, sorry. No, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, I was just gonna say, because of that too, um, I, I find that the field is pretty much populated by um, Caucasian women and a lot of African men. This is evaluation work, not international development work, because international development work, work has a lot of different players of different nationalities involved. But in terms of actual evaluators evaluating, you know, um, social programs, it's Caucasian women, African men, and there's very few Asian men or women, uh, a lot of Latin American uh, men and women, um, but very few Caribbean as well. Yeah. yeah. Just, a, just a few. So um, that's kind of like the international development evaluation field that I work in. Yeah. <laughs> it's not. I, and then in the United Nations, though, I do have to say um it, I've had the opportunity to work with some really good, strong evaluators who um, have unique specialties like um, disability or, you know, what we call protection, uh, you know, different systems involved in, you know, protecting young children, which requires the involvement of the police and the courts and that kind of thing. Those are like 
areas and systems that I'm not really, really, really familiar with, but I've learned a lot from those different evaluators. Mm. Um, you know, like I, I had one evaluation in the Caribbean and I coupled with a um, woman from the UK and she was actually a police officer. So it was really interesting to be able to see her technical lens. And then I brought like, okay, this is the evaluation piece we have to do. Right. So that's just one example. That's just one example. I appreciate you naming the the lack of diversity that we, I think largely in the field. Um, I've heard somebody call, um, a lot of international evaluation kind of helicopter evaluation. Like I'm going to helicopter in, I'm going to helicopter out. And uh, a lot of the times they're American and yeah, they are white. And I've always found that deeply problematic, which is part of the reason why I don't do any international evaluation. Cause I, I, I worry about my ability to come into any very different context and do that type of evaluation work justice. Right. Um, I have, I have some limited travel experience, but very much as a tourist. And for me to feel like I could come in and design and implement and carry out and report on an evaluation in a unique context as, as unique as a different nation. Right. Um, I think it's, I think it's worrisome. Right. And I, at, at minimum, just knowing that there's a worry level, I think is important. It is important. And I'm glad you bring that up, Dana, because a lot of um, evaluators, I think it's just now starting to be recognized as an issue. Yeah. Whereas in the past, like nobody really talked about it. Um, for me, I have to say, you know, having been born and raised in it, like I can, I take a lot more liberties than um, most evaluators, but only because, you know, certain things are just ingrained in me but for a long time uh you know a lot of evaluators kind of thought oh well let me just give it a crack at it and see see if it actually you know can amount to anything that's why you'd hear a lot of evaluators in international work well, this doesn't happen as much now, but back in the day, it was like, oh, well, I fell into this work, you know, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, I was used to be a blah, blah, blah. And now I'm this because uh, I had an opportunity to go to one trip somewhere and it was like, oh, I'm an international evaluator. <laughs> right, right. Oh, and it's this, this thought process that like evaluation, I, I can imagine it's like thinking evaluations a bit like research. And if we think of research as being very, um, especially like a post-positivistic perspective that um, the context doesn't really matter, then you don't think critically about how you do this work in other contexts, right? If you think of it as being this um, a contextual research is research, evaluation is evaluation, no matter when or where, or how or who is doing it, then of course you're going to be like, well, I could go to Papua New Guinea and I could go conduct an evaluation, no problem. But once you realize that, I mean, just at the fundamental level that the epistemologies are likely going to be different, and then for you to try to come in and just say, well, this is how evaluation is done. It's like, that's just not going to, it's not going to fly. 
Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. I'm so glad you brought that up because a lot of time people just kind of gloss over the cross-cultural element. And I find that a lot to be, especially in the case of U.S. government-funded evaluations, overseas, of course, you know, and then the focus is a lot on, you know, were the funds actually administered correctly, which is accountability is very, very, very strong in all international work because it just, that's, it's always a lot of money at stake, unfortunately, you know, not like millions, but certainly hundreds of thousands. Um, Most international um, programs that I evaluate are over 2 million or 5 million or sometimes 10 million. And that's, that's still a lot of money, you know, especially over the course of several years. However, um, there's always the cultural element that needs to be that happens to be the elephant in the room and it's not necessarily addressed adequately in the UN. However, it's the accountability piece. that's the elephant in the room. That's really not addressed adequately because a lot of things are just ineffectively done or if they've, cause you know, things are starting late or, um, not that there's fraud or anything. It's just money. It's always spent at a very slower pace because the cultural element is taken in and embraced. And, hmm. um, and a lot of times the, the program management is at the mercy of some personality person, hmm. you know, rather than um, his or her technical capacities so and it's always very very political too yeah oh yeah so so you have the it's always it's just just a delicate dance for each different area yeah that you choose to do evaluation with so I'm curious um thinking about the international evaluation work that you do what does it typically look like um and I, I say that after that whole conversation we just had and I can imagine it's again, very contextual, but are there like, are there things that you typically consider that you wouldn't do in a more domestic evaluation or? Yeah, I'm Dana. I'm so glad you asked this question because in um, international evaluation, we already had a framework in place, which is the good part is that it's like this cookie cutter approach and it makes everything a lot more easy because you're always asking about, uh, you're always working in a complex dynamic context. So if you've got this cookie cutter approach that says, okay, you're gonna cover these four or five areas and everybody knows what the four or five areas are and everybody usually knows what the four or five big, big questions are. So what framework are we talking about? Is this like the OECD? Exactly, Okay. the OECD, OECD DAC. Um, which is the, the um, development assistance kind of um, framework. So you've got your relevance, effectiveness, efficiency, sustainability, impact, and it's always those same areas. Um, the drawback is that a lot of clients just kind of use that as like their knee-jerk kind of 
framework and then they just have no self-control over the number of questions that they actually mm-hmm. try to want. Cause that's a lot to answer in one evaluation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, um, everybody wants to kind of just jump in the bandwagon and, and pursue these questions. And then there's no filtering like, well, what's really, 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 really important right now. I'm starting to see a little bit of people skirting the relevance and the impact and just focusing on effectiveness and to a limited extent, efficiency, and then sustainability to some extent. And then there's also um, a few of my clients are starting to integrate their own criteria, um, which is like uh, coherence, which is more of a systems thinking approach looking at, you know, what are, where does this program fit in all of the other programs that are doing similar things? Like this one um, program for child marriage in Afghanistan asked that question in addition to, but they didn't really hold back on the other questions, but they did want to know exactly where their program fit with the other programs that were targeting um, young girls and helping them with continuation of their schooling and um, slowing down early marriages. So you have a little bit of that and some of other UNICEF uh, clients are also doing something called gender human rights and equity. Um, Perhaps you've heard of that where you're looking at gender and human rights extent to which, you know, the program is uh, facilitating access to justice and then equity, looking more into how to assist or stay focused on helping those really vulnerable groups to access certain services like women, young girls and boys and disabled people and disability would then be like broken down, you know, not just like that general disability, but, you know, hearing impaired, vision impaired, um, physical, mental. So you have a bit more of that kind of nuanced way. And then, of course, I was just listening to Patricia Rogers. She's also focusing on like the where the program fits between the nexus of human and environmental systems. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's also starting to come into the whole international criteria, international evaluation criteria that um, some people are doing. So in addition to that, I tend to use a utilization focused evaluation because I like to make sure that the client can actually use it not just say to their donor, check, we got the evaluation done, now give us the next tranche. But actually, you know, well, you know, what came out of the evaluation, maybe we should try and use this new learning, you know, that happened and uh, maybe we should uh, incorporate this into our our next phase, something like that. And um, of course I use theory of change because that helps to better articulate the effects of the program. And um, I always use mixed methods. I don't think I've ever used a singular method in any of my evaluations. I love qualitative data 
uh, collection analysis. So that's just part of my work. And then I also use the feminist lens and then the equity lens. So mm. that's just my own personal evaluation work um, that I tend to integrate into the evaluation process. Yeah, I appreciate that you're able to like name all these different approaches and, and frameworks that like you use in your work. I, I don't know if a lot of, I, I'm curious if a lot of evaluators could like really pinpoint, like these are the frameworks that I use in my evaluation on a regular basis. That being said, I also know a lot of evaluators who very much pick the approach given the evaluations like, oh, this sounds like it's, it needs a most significant change framework, mm. um, an approach. And so they might do a little bit more cherry picking like that, but it's nice to like know how people are pulling all these different theories and approaches together. Cause I don't think one of them on, a, on its own is sufficient. Oh, I, I, I agree with you completely. I mean, that's just the way I do my work. Um, other evaluators may have different ways. I, it's just over time though, as an independent evaluator, you know like what quality evaluation ought to look like. Um, and not just to satisfy your client, but also to just do justice to mm-hmm. the actual program. You know, like the program in Afghanistan for child marriage, um, that was a very delicate situation. Um, I used a little bit of secondary information, but I knew from the get-go that I needed to get stories from people about, especially if you're gonna look at, you know, behavior change or attitudinal change about something so sensitive. And I knew from the beginning, I was going to need, you know, qualitative data. So I told the client, I was like, you know, a lot of the questions they had, they were planning on doing a randomized control trial anyway. And because it was Afghanistan, randomized control trial didn't work because there was like a lot of different assumptions that were being made about where access, uh, where data would be coming from in the Mm -hmm. first place. So they didn't even have the quantitative data that they really needed in order to do randomized controlled data. So they just said, oh, well, we can't do that. Let's just call in an evaluator and see what we can do because we need to give the donor something. And then I told them, I said, okay, well, you have to know what you're getting into when you just say you want qualitative work. I think we need to have like a lot of more nuanced questions besides, you know, did they change? You know, you need to be like, what was it before? And how did they realize that they had changed and what spurred the change and who within the family would be like the one kind of um, facilitating the change. Mm -hmm. You can't expect like the girl to be the only agent of change. Well, that was the original theory of change was like the girl is going to mature and mm. she's going to take her own rights and mm. she's going to realize her own situation. And I was like, that's not real. You have to look at the family, you have to look at the community, you have to look at how they actually introduced the topic. And, right. Um, so, of course, we had like a very different um, evaluation 
frame after. And that's what it takes when you, you know, introduce the theory of change, mixed methods, feminist lens, equity focus lens. That's the kind of new evaluation that comes out of it. Right. And then in the end, I think, you know, you have this really great setup where you've got all the information you need and you've dug down deeper where you were supposed to dig. And in this case too, because I don't speak the many languages of Afghanistan, I said, I'm going to need like a researcher who can actually ask these questions. <laughs> and then that was the beginning of the pandemic. So that was the second evaluator evaluation where I had to train a team mm. by video yeah. on how to access information. But they were so much more, um, they were so much, they had so much research experience, especially in the area of approaching girls about anything. So that mm. made the work a lot easier. But um, you know, I taught them the protocols to use and make people feel comfortable and sit down and really chit chat about how things have changed in your family and what spurred the change and where are you now? Um, so the data was so rich and exciting and it was one of the better evaluations. I'm quite proud of that evaluation. Oh, and during the pandemic too, that's yeah. That's wonderful. But I had the opportunity to go to Afghanistan too. So uh, I went there first and then okay. kind of took a look around. And then the um, client dropped the news that they originally wanted randomized control, but I was their second choice. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that happens a lot. Like, oh, we were planning on doing this. And for whatever reason, it didn't work. So come save the day, please. <laughs> Yeah, Mission Impossible. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I'm curious. So theory of change in international context, I'm wondering, like, how, how does that usually get received and how, how does it go? Because I've heard some people say that, like, theories of change and logic models and stuff um, may not be culturally appropriate. And so I'm curious your experiences of, of, of implementing a theory of change framework or doing logic models or anything like that and how those have gone. Well, I mean, a lot of that is driven because the donor says that they need a theory of change. Ah, so okay. <laughs> then they just kind of like go through the motions and then mm. just say it becomes like another thing on their checklist. So part of what I do, and it is a linear way of thinking. So part of what I do is I kind of help the client to piece the, connect the dots basically. So I'm giving them the overview. This is your story. This is your situation. And then from there, I'm helping them to see how, as because a lot of times there's so much description about like what we've done, how, we, how we've done it we're great, we've done this and that, overcome all kinds of challenges, which is a fantastic story. But then you wanna have to scratch a little deeper and say, okay, so how has this actually changed someone's situation? Um, 
that you're uh, focusing on. So in that regard, I just kind of help them to connect the dots because a lot of times what they already know needs to change because their donor says it needs to change, they are already familiar with, you know, okay, well, this is where we say we, need, we have changed something. But then I always try and help them to kind of dig a little deeper. So was this what you were thinking was going to change? And is this really important? Um, you know, was this something that was all along planned or did you just happen to, did you make any mistakes along the way? And hardly ever do I get an answer, yes, with making mistakes. Because like I say, you know, accountability is very, very high in the game. So yeah. there's really hardly any room for, for learning a lesson, unfortunately, unfortunately. I'm probably one of the few international evaluators who would actually admit, you know, there's very little room for learning a lesson. But then um, ultimately in the end, people are very much accepting of, you know, the final effect that has happened. I tend to also highlight the other things along the way that have changed, like um, people's awareness about certain things mm -hmm. and not just, um, that their attitudes change, but they're actually opening up their minds to that and then other things too. Right. So that's always really a plus for me. Um, and that's how I use theory of change tool in the evaluation. It also helps to simplify a lot of things because there are always a lot of things happening. So you wanna keep the reader kind of focused in on like the main message right um which is which is critical because otherwise i think the people who write 100 page documents i god bless them for doing that but <laughs> it's like not accessible exactly except for other evaluators who are interested and then but the people actually making financial decisions are like show me the two pager uh, and info, info, infographic, mm -hmm. and then talk me through 15 minutes of it. And then that's it. That's all they need. So I try and make my reports 30 pages and there's a lot of stuff that doesn't go in there. Right. Just like the main, 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 main messages. But I find that the evaluation field might be evolving, if you will to the 10 pager blah blah and then the two pager infographic and then everything else is like you know in the annexes i find that the evaluation field is evolving to that to that yeah to that level yeah or there's a separate technical report that has all the technical information <laughs> that the clients typically don't really need, but it's nice to have it there. So it's like when that chime happens and like, oh, can you do this? It's like, well, it's in there. It's in the technical report. Here's where you can find that information. Right. Um, but right. yeah, having that in the main report is not helpful in any regard to anybody. So um, apart from that, I think the, in terms of for the future, like um, in addition to like the info, infographics and the 10 pages and the 10 technical reports, I find that um, 
other tools that I'm trying to integrate now into my own work are um, the systems systems approach. Mm -hmm. It's like the new buzzword, you know, like how can you integrate the systems thinking? Right. And, um, you know, my, Michael Quinn Patton just came up with that blue marble. Um, well, actually it's a, a couple years now, but at least it's come to my attention. <laughs> And, um, you know, there's another book out about transformational, transformational evaluation. Um, I just read, you know, like, I kind of think we're really on our own here in terms of charting our own path. Because when I read that one, um, it's an e-book, but, um, you know, there's really no conclusive or consensually agreed uh, definition of what constitutes transformational evaluation so mm -hmm. um it's just a bunch of ideals and and so-called very powerful slogans about the need to, to look beyond just the evaluand or the program or even the country or and look deeper and broader into you know the environment social cultural context in a way i kind of feel like i've already been doing a lot of that and just you know especially when you look at cultural cultural you know practices i i kind of see a lot of that in general when i first see an evaluation so mm -hmm. um but I think there's more of a recognition now that those factors really play into um, play into the actual program implementation more than I ever thought before. So, yeah. but I'm I'm still looking at ways to kind of use a wider lens to kind of examine something, and then also now I think I'm struggling though with actually having to articulate it and like put it in the report or mm. uh, put it in the in a persuasive way into the uh, presentation at the end or, um, whatever you do that's kind of like pull the client aside to say this is what you need to focus on for the future you know are there any particular systems approaches systems theories that you're using right now or that you're exploring no unfortunately because I just, like what I'm working on right, right, right now at this minute is um, it's a funding source within the United Nations. Uh, it was actually one of the first since 1946, it's very exciting. Wow. Um, it's called the Regular Program for Technical Cooperation or PTC. Okay. And it's, designed to just kind of help strengthen capacity and it's this fund that doesn't require a whole lot of flips to access and you have uh, opportunities to kind of help people to you know strengthen their skill sets to do all kinds of cool stuff that the UN does or that the General Assembly voted on and said you country 
X need to work on this. Um, so this fund is kind of just there to help people, help countries to receive through very minimal bureaucracy, which is mm. a very big issue in the UN. Um, and I am dying to put in a systems perspective here because it's not just about the, the, the fund being enabling this nimble kind of workings because it doesn't take very long to access the funds at all. Hmm. Um, but the overarching systems that would navigate that need to be navigated in order for things to get done are just, you know, that's like the big elephant in the room too. You know, you've got politics at the country level, you've got politics at the department level, you've got um, overarching bureaucracy within the UN that kind of prevents things from moving very fast because mm -hmm. there's so much accountability. Um, you've got different actors involved who access the funds and use the funds to actually do things for countries. They have a lot of things happening. I mean, it's, it would be a wonderful way to kind of summarize a little bit how it's not just this program that is the thing that needs to be looked at. Mm -hmm. It is so much influenced by so many other factors out there. So I'm actually, I'm, as, as soon as I finish talking to you, Dana, I'm going to get back on it. <laughs> very exciting. Oh, I like hearing what people are working on right, right this very moment. That, do, that does sound like a lot of fun. Oh, it did. I mean, I had a, a lot of calls, remote calls to different corners of the world. Um, so that was unique and interesting. Plus some of the uh, actual uh, activities that were funded were quite interesting as well. Like um, there's a international instrument for the rights of people with disability. Um, so it hadn't been ratified in a particular country. Um, and so this fund was used to support all these uh, disabled people organizations to come together to put together like a action plan to make sure that it was ratified in their country. Oh, that sounds incredible. I know, it was really nice. And then, so I was really happy to hear, I had to talk to that person in that, I can't say, I had to talk to that person in that country. And yeah. um, and that person was very excited and focused. And it was like, he was thrilled to hear that somebody was interested in the movement in his country. So. Um, so there were like a lot of very interesting types of projects as part of this fund. So, yeah. um, but it would really benefit from a systems thinking approach, I believe. Oh, cool. I hope, I hope you get the opportunity to do that at some point. I, I, I wish I, I'm really thinking about how I'm going to integrate it. Yeah. Yeah. So before we wrap up, um, I'm curious, what tips would you have for folks who are interested in more international evaluation? 
I must have gave uh, back when um, I was a goer to the American Evaluation Association regularly. I'm going this year. Are you going this year? I am going. I hope I get to see oh, you. Oh, good. Um, yeah, there, we spent like a whole session on this. <laughs> it was, um, there's so much you could do to get involved in international evaluation. I mean, number one, name of the game, network. Mm -hmm. um, number two, learn a language. I know that's not like something you can just check off your list, but. <laughs> I mean, if you get into a good immersion program, I think you could kind of check that off on your list. Like oh, a good yeah. six month immersion program. If you go somewhere for six months, and you have to struggle to communicate your daily mm -hmm. needs, you're going to learn that language. Yeah. Duolingo will not get you there. <laughs> <laughs> I would say to you that that's actually the best way is to like go somewhere, mm -hmm. like drop what you're doing and then just go somewhere. I mean, it's easier said than done, but like I said, you know, some people, to go through their church or um if you know somebody who lives somewhere mm -hmm. and uh or is actually living somewhere that doesn't where they don't speak the language english very much and you just want to go visit go visit um and then take a look around and you'll see there's plenty of opportunities for evaluation for sure awesome well thank you for that What's coming up for you and anything that you want to share with our listeners? Um, yeah, I think the part about um, the only, I think, thing that is really much of a drag when you are an independent evaluator is that you always have to drum up your own business, you know, mm -hmm. like, and there's plenty of different websites. Part of drumming up the business though is having to write proposals for you know your next work a lot of times you have repeat clients i have my share of repeat clients which is great too because you know that me that's actually a reflection of the quality of your work as if your client comes back to you and says right. hey tristy here's like another job i want you to do mm -hmm. or can you can you do this i know you're busy but can you like squeeze this in or whatever so um the one thing that, and it's partially repeat, is uh, Papua New Guinea has another um, evaluation opportunity. And so we, uh, me and this uh, other firm that I um, joined forces with, we put in for a second, the second evaluation. So this time, however, I insisted on traveling to <laughs> because like I said it was a challenge before but yeah. um, this time the scope of what they were actually asking for as well was um, quite expansive and would therefore require actually traveling there so and um, let's hope I get that and if I do I get to stay for a while because it is really far yeah yeah well, I'll have my fingers crossed for you. Oh, well, thank that. you. Thank yeah. you so much. Thanks so to so wrap much. up, is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners? 
No, I think that's it. I can definitely share with you those websites where you can get um, at least look at where opportunities are in the world. And um, and it's not just the UN, it's UN non-governmental organizations. And US government stuff is on a specific website, but mm-hmm. I mean, the main thing is though, it's really about um, networking. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Tristy. I really enjoyed getting to know you and the work that you do. Very exciting work. Thanks so much, Dina. Thanks so much for this opportunity. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast website at evalueland.fireside.fm. Subscribe to get notified of new episodes and contact us with your questions, comments, or suggestions. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, this has been Evalueland.